I first met Ariel about four months ago. It was my brother Mitch's 25th birthday, and he came to the party that my mom and I had planned for him. He had told us beforehand that he would be bringing his new girlfriend, but neither of us could have expected how perfect she would be. She had long flowing black hair to her waist, green eyes, and an infectious smile. She said all the right things, had an adorable laugh, and was very polite to my mother and myself. I could see Mitch watching our reactions, and he seemed delighted that we were getting along with Ariel. The only one who didn't seem to like Ariel was my Maltese, Sam. He barked the entire time she was in the house, and would not come near her, even when she offered him food from her plate. Mom made me lock him in my room, but he continued barking himself hoarse until she finally left the house. This was the strangest thing to me. Sam is one of the friendliest dogs you'll ever meet. Still, I brushed it off and just assumed that maybe Sam was having a bad day, or maybe Ariel had a pet cat that he could smell or something. The next time we saw her, we were all out for a family dinner at Red Lobster. It had been about two weeks since Mitch's birthday, and to our surprise, Mitch had dyed his natural blonde hair jet black. He also wore a torn denim jacket, and his nose was pierced. I could just sense my mom's disapproval emanating from her, but she held her tongue and even complimented Mitch during the dinner. Ariel was as charming as she was before, and took small bites of her fish as she quietly watched all of us interact. When we got home, my mother finally unloaded. Your brother has been seeing that girl for less than three weeks, Dante, and she's already got him changing his looks? Mitch has never dyed his hair before in his life, and that damn nose piercing. I knew that little slut was no good when I first met her. She's just too perfect. Well, Mitch seems happy, I offered weakly, to which my mom just clicked her tongue. Little did she know, she had just seen her oldest son for the last time. It still hurts me to type this, but mom got into an accident. A terrible, terrible accident. It happened a mere few days after we had the dinner. When they showed Mitch, Ariel, and me the body, I broke down into tears. Mom had somehow been severed at the waist. It had been a three-car collision on the freeway. The other two drivers were alive and relatively unharmed. I found myself orphaned at 16. Mitch took the necessary steps and soon became my legal guardian. When he pulled up outside the two-story gray and black house on the edge of town, I looked around in protest. What happened to your apartment? I asked in confusion. Oh, I moved in with Ariel a long time ago. There's plenty of space here, man, and Sam will love the backyard. Sam did not love the backyard. In fact, he didn't love anything about the house. He barked incessantly until Ariel approached me as I sat eating breakfast at the dinner table. Shut him up, or I will, she snarled, her green eyes suddenly more vicious than Sam could ever be. I took Sam into my new room and calmed him down as best I could. Even when he was quiet, he stared apprehensively at the door, as though afraid Ariel would swoop in and scoop him up. Sam was not the only one who didn't like the house. It was spooky as hell. Cobwebs covered most of the furniture and the old paintings from the 1800s. There were creaks and bumps, and sometimes the lights seemed to go out on their own. There were a lot of old rooms that I was forbidden to enter, and Ariel always seemed to know what I was planning to do before I even said anything. Have fun with your friends, she said with a smile, as she and Mitch snuggled together on the leather couch. I hadn't even told them I was going out yet, 
Another time, I had just gotten a nude pic from a girl at school, and on my way up the stairs, I ran into Ariel. Have fun in there, she whispered, a devilish look in her eyes. I was too uncomfortable to do anything as I laid in bed, staring wistfully at the picture. Ariel was also too comfortable with me around, even if it was her house. She would just strut around in her bathrobe most of the time, and whenever my brother would catch me looking at her, he would just grin and give me a thumbs up. She would barge into the bathroom to put on makeup or brush her hair, even when she knew I was in the shower. She never used the bathroom. As a matter of fact, I haven't even seen her eat anything either. Not since that night at Red Lobster. At night, I could hear them. Not Ariel and my brother, but Ariel and her friends. She had a group of five that would visit her late at night, and they would retreat to the room that was just down the hall from my own. They would chant, saying things in a language I didn't know. And outside, the weather would turn from a nice normal night to a complete thunderstorm. Sam would hide under the bed until the chanting stopped, and it took a lot of effort for me to get him to come out of the room the mornings after. One time, I ran into one of the girls. I felt safe enough to leave my room, given that the rain had stopped and the sun had come out. But no sooner did I step out, I ran into one of the girls. She had a similar style to Ariel's. She wore a black dress, had long black hair with green highlights, and an abundance of piercings. Hi, she said, flashing a smile much like Ariel's. Hi, just on my way to school, I said, trying to squeeze past her. She didn't move. I just wanted to say sorry about your mother. She may have been a bitch, but I'm sure she's in a better place now. I have never been so tempted to hit a woman in my life. I settled for ramming my way past her instead. On my way down the stairs, she called my name and I looked back. We're having an orgy on Halloween. You can come. I know you're just dying to lose your virginity, she said with a wink. I ran out of the house. I've put up with so much the past few months, I'm surprised I haven't lost my sanity. But the other day, home alone, I did something I shouldn't have. I wanted to find out exactly who Ariel was, where she came from. Like an idiot, I used an old hairpin to pick a lock on one of the downstairs rooms I had been forbidden from. The must hit me like a literal slap in the face. It felt like the room hadn't been accessed in years, but I knew that it had. There were old dolls scattered here and there, ancient newspaper clippings and old brushes. And there was a single painting. Hanging above a fireplace, I was shocked to find the face of a woman who was identical to Ariel staring back at me. I looked at the artist's name and the year it had been painted. 1806. I would have ran from the room, closed the door behind me and tried to forget the whole thing. But I found something on the floor. Lying next to an old yellowed bone was a piece of torn paper. I picked it up, seeing a pair of women's legs, wearing blue jeans. I glanced around and found the other half of the picture. My mother's face smiled back at me. The picture had been torn at the waist. The Strawberry Epidemic of 82 and that's what people will come to call the tragedy that affected my childhood town in the summer of 1982. I was 16 back then, and I thought the world was my oyster. I came from one of the wealthiest families in town. I was popular in and out of school, and my mother was on the fast track to become mayor. Youth and privilege can be a bad combination, 
but I think the worst to come of it in my case was naivety. I didn't think anything horrible could happen to me or my friends and loved ones. The local church was sponsoring a charity event that summer. Though I'm not sure how much it counts as charity if you use the money to buy new pews and give the pastor a raise. They collected a massive amount of food from various farmers in the area, and then, for a $10 donation, people were welcome to eat as much of it as they wanted. Someone had donated a lot of strawberries to the church function, crates and crates of them. As a result, they were the most abundantly available food there. My family made an appearance, of course. We were the pedigree of the town, and it was important for us to be seen at every major event. My mother donated generously, probably under the impression that the more she gave, the more votes she could snag in the mayoral election. Politics. Got to love them. We didn't need anything there, however, and that was probably what saved us. Though my mother made a big deal of supporting local farmers, all of our food was shipped to us by a private company specializing in catering to those who could afford it. She explained to me that fresh produce grown on small farms was more likely to be of lower quality and plagued by pests and disease. Today, I know she probably just didn't want to eat the same food as poor people. Nearly every person at the function ate some strawberries, but the children gorged themselves on them, especially after the church provided bowls of sugar for them to dip the strawberries in. I saw one girl who stuffed her face with so many of them, her mouth and hands were stained red. She reminded me of those old vampire movies, where the vampires were messy when they killed their prey. Everything was fine for about a week after the function. Then, one night, little Billy Appleton was admitted to the hospital. Later in life, I found copies of the medical transcripts from that night. He was so malnourished and underweight, the doctors initially called CPS, assuming that his parents weren't feeding him. Then, other symptoms began to appear. Small yellow boils popped up everywhere on his body. Over the next few weeks, those boils would swell to the size of golf balls. Another kid came in with the same symptoms later that day. Then another, and another. After around a dozen sick kids came in, the elderly began to show up as well. Nobody panicked for a few days, although the rash of sick people was the talk of the town. Rumors flew as to the cause. Some were plausible, a new strain of chickenpox, and others were downright silly. The government was testing biological weapons on the American heartland. But everyone had a theory. Nobody made the connection to the strawberries until an older woman fell ill a week after the others. She'd taken some strawberries home with her from the church and ate them after most peoples were gone. After telling the doctors about it, someone realized that all the kids and elderly people had eaten strawberries at the church function. They sent samples of the strawberries away to be tested. The public was never told what the results were. All I know, a few days after the samples were sent and about two and a half weeks after the first patient was admitted, the CDC and National Guard rolled into our town by the truckload. We were placed under quarantine. No one was allowed in or out of town. All of the remaining strawberries from the church were confiscated. Every citizen was required to submit to a blood test. No one was told what was plaguing our town. After about two months or so, during which 30 people died in the hospital and were cremated without the family's consent, the government left our town. The official story told in the national news was that there was a new and deadly strain of E. coli from contaminated strawberries that was responsible. Almost no one in our town believed that, but no one was interested in our version of things. No reporters came looking for interviews, 
and all attempts by the locals to tell their own story in a newspaper or on the television failed. The blogs some of us had taken to writing in years to come were swept away into the ashbin of conspiracy theorists and Bigfoot hunters. I'm over 50 years old now, and I've never told anyone my version of things until right now. See, I know what caused the strawberry epidemic of 82, and it wasn't E. coli. It wasn't even bacteria. One day, a week after the government left our town, I was hiking in the woods when I caught sight of someone moving through the trees. I followed them to a creek in a secluded part of the woods, and I saw it was a girl of about my age. She threw herself into the creek, which was only waist deep, and began to drink the water like someone who just crossed the desert. I called out to her as I approached. When she raised her head to look at me, I screamed. Her face and arms were covered in the same yellow boils as the boy who ate the strawberries, only her boils were huge. They were about the size of tennis balls. The girl didn't react to me except to blink and stare. After a minute of frozen terror, I noticed the water of the creek was clouding with yellow and red fluid. The girl's blisters were bursting while she stood in the water. What I saw next, I'll never forget as long as I live. When I lie on my dying bed, this image will inevitably pop into my head, though I will try hard to forget it. As I watched, a boil on the girl's face burst, and a torrent of yellow pus and blood gushed forth. But, as I watched, a huge, white worm, nearly a foot long, and as big around as a nightcrawler, wriggled from her boil and dropped into the water. I watched it drift down the creek. It, and others like it, when I turned back to the girl, she had a glazed look in her eyes, like she was sleeping and forgot to close her eyelids. She eventually collapsed in the water, and I watched the current carry her away. She never said a word to me. My research led me to her name. She was Betty Lancaster, a girl who disappeared from a neighboring county a month before the church function that claimed so many lives. Her meth-head parents gave up on her quickly, and so did society. Since no one was looking for her at the time of the epidemic, she must have slipped through the quarantine by living in the woods. I don't know how she became infected. My guess is from eating strawberries someone threw out. I never told anyone about what I saw in the woods. Well, apart from my mother, who insisted I not tell anyone for fear of bad publicity. There are just so many unanswered questions. To this day, no one knows who donated the strawberries to the function. The crates were left on the church steps early in the morning, and no one saw who dropped them off, and no one knows where they came from. No one knows why the epidemic only affected the very young and the very old, or why it never happened anywhere else afterwards. I should have said something sooner, mother's political career be damned, but I was afraid. I was young and confused, and by the time I was ready to come out with what I'd seen, it was years too late. So I'm telling this story now, while I still can. And there's a reason why I'm coming forth now. The other day, I was at a farmer's market and I saw a baby gnawing on a strawberry. Maybe it was just a trick of the light or my own scarred imagination. But I swear, I saw something white and wriggling at the corner of that baby's mouth. I'm a 28-year-old male, but when this happened, I was about 23. I worked at a mom-and-pop's pizza shop in Northern California. 
It's a small farm town and has a few suburbs near it. I kind of did everything since I knew the family and they trusted me running things while they were gone. This night, though, I was working deliveries and got the weirdest one of my life. Everything seemed fine when I took the order and the lady ordered anchovies on her pizza and I always think people who order that are weird as shit. She made a point to tell me that the pizza had to be hot when it got there or she wasn't going to pay for it. So I get the pizza and throw it in the warmer and drive to her house before any of my other deliveries. I'd like to tell you guys that her house was creepy and run down, but it looked like your average one-story new housing development home. I rang the doorbell and put on my fake-ass customer service smile. You all know what I'm talking about. And as soon as she opens the door, I knew that this was going to be bad. This haggard old lady, who looked like she was a smoker of 50-plus years, looked me dead in the eyes and said, It better be hot, or I'm not paying like I told you over the damn phone. I understand, ma'am. I made sure to stop by your place first, even though it was last on my list. Bring it in and set it on the table. Now, I normally didn't go inside customers' homes, because I read way too many stories on No Sleep and Let's Not Meet. But at this point, I'm just wanting to kill her with kindness and see where this will go. So I say, No problem. I also brought cheese and ranch for you if you needed. As soon as I opened the bag, she just grabbed the box and put her hand on the bottom of it and was just rubbing it. It's not hot enough. You fuckers do this every time, and I'm not paying for this shit. Not a single dime. One thing I have an issue with is my mouth. I don't know when to just shut up and try to understand where people are coming from. Look, lady, your house is a five-minute drive from our shop. And I stop by your place first. There is no way that your pizza is cold. If you refuse to pay, you're going to be 86th, and I'll note it in your account. She immediately walked into her kitchen and came back out. She had an old pizza from a few weeks prior that she had ordered from us, and she threw it at me. Take your fucking pizza and get out of my house. You're the devil. She yelled that at me and just kept calling me Satan and the devil. Again, my mouth has no filter, and I can't control it. I try, but I fail every time. As I'm closing the bag and laughing about how much I hate my job, I tell her, Alright ma'am, you will not be able to order pizza from us again. I hope you have a great day. God bless you and your house. She kept following me outside to my car, screaming, You are the fucking devil! And there are families out there just watching this go down. So I get into my car and start driving. Once I'm back, I tell my manager what happened, and she told me that the lady has already called in and screamed to her about what happened. Her story was that I cussed her out and got her order wrong. My manager shut her down and said I'd never do anything like that. But here's the weird part. She whispered into the phone to my manager and repeated, Send him back. Send him back. Send him back. She called once a day for almost three months, just whispering this to whoever answered. She started driving by the restaurant and yelling, The devil works here. You're all going to hell. Now, I wasn't scared. I was just pissed and wanted to retaliate. Because I can't tell you how many times she actually tried to follow me back to my apartment when I got off of work. One night, I pulled over and got out just for her to stop her car in the road with her lights on, yelling, The devil is here! 
After this, I jumped back in my car and sped off. Luckily, after six months of dealing with this lady, I found out she was schizophrenic and bipolar and hadn't been on her meds. Her daughter put her in a care home, but when she was cleaning out her house, she saw that her mom had pictures of me all over her bedroom wall with the word, yep, you guessed it, devil written all over it. She found me and explained everything to me, and that was pretty much the end of it. This is without a doubt the most terrifying thing that has ever happened to me. I've only told a few people, but feel like I need to share it here in case it helps any students traveling abroad to be more cautious. So, a little background first. This happened to me about five years ago, when I was 19 and studying abroad in Italy. Our school had its own campus, about an hour outside of Rome, in a quiet town where the Pope has a summer place. Part of our school's program in Italy was that we had to leave campus for 10 days to vacation and explore Europe in October. Everyone would split off into their friend groups and travel. I didn't really have a group I was attached to, but not wanting to go by myself, I asked these two girls I was friendly with if I could travel with them. They were best friends and roommates and were nice enough and said I could go with them. We decided to travel from Rome to Austria, Prague and Germany via Eurail. We went the entire trip having fun and without incident until the last day, which is where my awful experience begins. On our last day, we were in Munich, meeting up with most of our class as a school tradition of sorts. The two girls I was traveling with and I had tickets to take the overnight train that night back to Rome from Munich, which left around midnight. During the day, one of the girls tells me that she had changed her plans 10 days ago before we even left and was going to stay in Munich overnight and come back the next day, which was a surprise to me, but I still wasn't that worried because she was joining up with her classmates and staying in a booked hostel with them, and I would still be traveling with this other girl. Then, to my dismay, the other girl says she's changing her mind and staying overnight in Munich too. I asked her where she planned to stay, as we hadn't booked a room in a hostel. She said she would sneak into the hostel and share a bed with the other girl. I told her that I was really uncomfortable traveling alone, and that it wasn't fair for her to abandon me like that. She told me, nonchalantly, that I could just find a hostel and book another ticket if I cared so much. I told her I didn't have the extra money to pay for a separate ticket back to Rome, let alone a hostel in addition to that. I was a college student on a very tight budget and had already spent a lot on this trip and didn't have enough in my bank account. Despite my pleas, those petty girls said essentially that it wasn't their problem and they ditched me. Luckily, we had already met with another group of our classmates who felt bad for me and spent the entire last day of our vacation running all around Munich trying to find a hostel to stay at that night and even offered to pull together money to help me pay for a ticket back. Unfortunately, it was Oktoberfest in Germany and literally every hostel was completely booked. And despite my attempts to sneak into my friend's hostels with them, I was stopped and thrown out. At this point, it's nighttime. I was defeated and worried, but my other classmates who had tried to help me were still sticking with me. I figured, at this point, the only options I had were to sleep outside on a bench in Munich, which is totally unsafe and ridiculous, or to take the overnight train back to Rome by myself. Not super safe, 
but I figured I'd be around other people, so maybe not completely awful. So, I decided to go ahead and take the overnight train back to Rome by myself, and my classmates walked me to the station and saw me on the train. Those guys ended up being some of my closest friends in years to come. So, now I'm on this overnight train by myself, and I head to the carriage. The way it was set up, it was this room off a hallway with six seats. No beds, because I was trying to save money. I was the first one in my carriage, and so I sit next to the window on one side, and I put my giant backpacker's pack, which was my only luggage, on the two seats next to me. Eventually, two German guys in their 30s come in, and are polite enough and sit opposite me. They converse with each other, they've got suitcases, etc., and are looking at maps of Rome and tourist things to do. I feel safe enough with these guys, since they're minding their own business. But, this is where it gets bad. I settle in and listen to music and try to sleep for a bit, and perhaps after an hour or so, I start to notice that there's a super sketchy guy standing right outside our carriage, in the middle of the hallway, just staring at me. I'm completely freaked out because, one, no one is supposed to just be in the hallway standing there. You're either on your way to the loo or headed back to your carriage. Why would anyone just be standing in the hallway? And two, he didn't break eye contact with me once I looked at him. He just kept staring at me with this sinister look on his face, like he wanted to eat me up. So I'm kind of freaking out and try to look away and pretend like I didn't notice him. I wait a bit to see if he was just a normal guy going to the loo or something. But when I look back, he's still there and is still leering at me from behind the window door of my carriage. I want to go shut the curtains to our carriage so he can't look in, but I don't want to get too close to him or piss him off or anything. So I turn to the two German guys and quietly tell them that the guy there is creeping me out and staring at me and making me uncomfortable. And I ask them if one of them could casually, in a minute or so, close the curtains. I'd hope they'd be men and kind of protect me and tell the guy to bug off or whatever. But they seemed annoyed at me and mumbled that they would, but never did. When I brought it up again, they acted kind of miffed, but eventually shut the curtain. I thought that surely would have deterred the guy from lurking and soon fell asleep. A few hours later, I awoke to three young Germans in their mid to late 30s join our carriage in the remaining three seats. As they come in, I notice that the creepy guy from before is still there, standing just outside my door. I kind of freak out inside and really don't feel comfortable at all. I try to talk to the younger Germans, but they weren't very friendly and perhaps didn't speak English very well. It's been hours at this point, and I notice that I really have to pee, but the only way for me to get to the loo is to go outside of the carriage and down the hallway to the loo at the very end of the train. I noticed that when the younger Germans came in, they moved the curtain a bit so I can see the creepy dude standing out there, still leering at me. He refused to go away. I noticed that when people walk by to go to the loo or whatever, he kind of acts casual like he's waiting for someone or something and looks away from my carriage, but... Once they're gone, he's back at it again. I try to hold it as long as I can, but this is like a 12-hour train ride, and it would be another 4 hours or more before we made it to Rome, and there was no way I was going to make it. At this point, everyone in my carriage has been asleep for a long time, and I don't want to wake anyone. I have to nudge the young Germans on my way out of the carriage, and I try to tell them I'm going to the loo, and could they just keep an eye on me and the creepy lurker, 
and they brush me off like I'm a jerk for waking them up and go back to sleep. I exit the carriage, freaked out of my mind, and also about to pee my pants. Of course, I basically run into the creepy dude standing outside my carriage. There's hardly any room in the hallway, and he's not giving me any space. He's staring me down. I'm about 5'4", and he was towering over me at like 6'2 or something. So I do my best to book it to the loo as fast as I can, and lock the door behind me. My heart is racing, and I'm going as fast as I can so that, hopefully, he hasn't followed me here. But alas, I get out of the loo, and he is right there, with this disgusting smile on his face. I mean, I don't like to exaggerate, but there was evil in his eyes, and it chilled me. I was sick to my stomach. I tried to squeeze by him, and he started to press himself against me. I gave him my nastiest face, and yelled at him, Let me go! And praise tiny baby Jesus, there was a man headed to the loo just then. So the creepy dude moved off me, and I booked it back to my carriage, where I proceeded to stay for the remainder of the ride. I had thought my outburst and little scene I caused would have deterred that sketchy guy from creeping on me anymore, but when I looked up at some point, I noticed he was right back where he was, in the hallway staring at me. At this point, I was kind of in disbelief that someone could be so blatantly creepy, so I started to wonder if there was actually a seat out in the hallway that was cheaper than a shared carriage. But then I realized that when I left to go to the bathroom earlier, I had seen no seats, and I also remembered one unsettling detail too. This guy had no luggage, not even a briefcase. This was a 12-plus hour trip from Germany to Rome, so everyone on this train was either coming or going from a work or pleasure trip. So the fact that this guy had no luggage or briefcase or anything on him and was just standing in the hallway staring at me made my stomach drop. This man did not have good intentions, and I couldn't rationalize it any other way. I spent the last hour or so of the trip devising my plan for once the train arrived in Rome. I knew the train station there very well, and knew that the metro train I needed to transfer to to get back to my campus was down several flights of stairs and around more than a few twists and turns. I felt pretty confident, so when the train stopped, I had my backpack on ready to go. The other Germans got out of the train ahead of me, and the creepy guy had to move for them to pass. I quickly followed in between them and jumped off the train and booked it through the station, without looking behind me. Thank God it was crowded in the station, with people heading to work, etc., so I felt pretty safe that I was disguised in the crowd. I flew down the flights of stairs and around the turns without stopping. When I finally got down to the platform for the local metro train I needed, I felt safe. I was just catching my breath when I saw none other than the creepy guy come down the stairs and look around for me. When he saw me, he had this evil look in his eye, and I wanted to cry. I grabbed tightly onto my pocket knife in my coat pocket and made my way to a group of harmless-looking Italians and tried to stand in their group. I was standing still about several train car lengths away from him at this point, but he was starting to make his way over to me just as the train pulled up. I hopped on my car immediately and tried to position myself near some people. I noticed he got on a few cars away. As the car was moving, he made his way down the car, into the next, and with each stop the train made, he got a little closer to me. I moved a few cars down from him, but I grew increasingly worried that the farther outside the Metro Rome area, the fewer people were on the train, and he was getting closer to me. 
When I had made it to the first car and realized I had nowhere else to go, I looked and noticed he was only one car away from me and headed my way. As we pulled into the next stop, I grasped my pocket knife tightly and made a last-ditch effort to evade him and got off the train. I looked to my right and to my horror saw that he was getting off as well and was briskly running toward me. As the last few people shoved past me to get on the train, I realized I had no options left and threw myself back and dove into the train without breaking eye contact with this sicko as the door to the train closed in front of him, leaving him on the platform, fuming and yelling as the train sped off. Not really believing I had made it safely, I spent the rest of the metro ride still in fight or flight mode and dashed upstairs to my above ground bus up to my campus, making sure I was sitting next to a sweet old lady. The creepy dude never showed up on the bus, and once I had made it back inside my campus walls, I immediately fell to the ground and sobbed. I realized I was so incredibly lucky that I evaded what was probably a certain kidnapping, rape, or murder even. Who knows? But I have never forgotten that man's face, and how it made me feel like I wanted to peel my skin off and crawl under a rock and die. A little background. I was about eight, and my mother, my little sister, and I were taking a road trip across Wyoming. This wasn't unusual, as we had family living all across the state, and my mom loved piling us into the car and driving. My memory of this event is patchy, and I remember it more for the way my mom reacted than for the event itself. I don't remember exactly where this was, or where exactly we were headed. But anyone who has ever driven through Wyoming knows that the roads are mostly deserted. We had been driving several hours behind an older green and white truck. We were approaching a gas station, and I remember my little sister being so excited because she wanted to get those little bottles made of wax that had juice in them. The green and white truck pulls into the gas station, and we follow. We use the restroom and get some snacks, my mom fills up with gas, and we get back into the car and back on the road. A little time passes, and my mom asks, Is that truck behind us the same one that we followed into the gas station? I turn in my seat and confirm that yes, it is the same truck. I sit back down and continue gorging myself on snacks, but I sense that my mom is uneasy. She keeps looking in a rearview mirror and watching the truck. It was a long drive to the next gas station. And along the way, the truck behind us would speed up and get dangerously close to us and then back away. After a stretch of several miles, we were nearing another gas station. My mom adjusts her mirror so she can see us in the back seat. She says, I'm going to pull into this gas station and open my door like I'm getting out. I don't want you two to open your doors. Don't get out. Just sit tight and hang on. My little sister and I look at each other like, okay? I thought it was strange, but the look in her eyes scared me a little. My mom is a calm person, but she has this presence about her that makes you aware that she isn't to be messed with. All my friends throughout the years have been a little scared of her, which is odd considering she is just over 5 feet tall and about 100 pounds. Anyway, we pull into the station 
and up to a pump. My mom adjusts her mirror to see behind us and opens her door with the car still running. The green and white truck pulls in and parks just to the side of the turn-in. The driver pops his hood, gets out, comes around to the front of his truck and props his hood up. He starts messing around under the hood with his back to us. From what I remember of him, he was a really big guy. But who isn't to an 8-year-old girl? My mom slams her door and peels out of the gas station. I turn in my seat to watch the man. He turns around like he's startled, looks right at us, quickly closes his hood, even though he had only been looking in there for a few seconds. At this point, my mom is driving so fast that I lose sight of him. I was terrified, and I knew it must be serious for my mom to drive like this. Up ahead, the road bent sharply to the left, and there was a small road to the right and a few buildings. Just before the bend, my mom slams on the brakes, pulls the steering wheel all the way to the right, and, as if it were straight out of an action movie, slides around the corner. She speeds through the small parking lot of one of the buildings and parks behind it. From our vantage point, we were hidden from traffic behind us, but could see anyone passing. A short time later, we watched the green and white truck speed right past us and around the bend in the road. Obviously, my sister and I were very shaken up. My mom asked if we needed to use the restroom, and I said yes. She said she did too, but we would wait here for a bit, then make our way to the next station. I'll never forget what she said next, because it was so out of character for her. She said, I'd rather piss my pants in this car than to be murdered on the side of the road. A little time passes, and we got back on the road and continued our trip. We never saw that truck again. Around March of 2014, I started talking to this girl on Tinder. She seemed cool and fun, and after about a week of talking, she suggested we meet in person. She invited me to this coffee shop, and I accepted. However, the day up, she started messaging me, saying she had to tell me something. Her pictures on Tinder weren't actually of her, and yes, she was a guy. He claimed he really liked talking to me though, and begged me to still meet up with him. Naturally, I declined. I blocked his profile and continued on my life. About a week later, I started talking to another girl. Once again, she seemed cool and fun and we hit it off. She asked me if I spoke to people on Tinder frequently, and, rather stupidly, I told her about my previous encounter with the man lady. Weeks later, I would realize that this new girl was the same girl as the week before. She asked me if I wanted to meet up, and I said sure, as long as it was in a public place. We decided on a cafe, and the next day, I sat at a table waiting. Five, ten, fifteen minutes had passed, and she was nowhere to be found. I then peered out the window and saw, from across the street, a man staring at me intently. I looked away, waited a few seconds and looked back, and he was still standing there staring. At that point, I left the cafe, got on my bike, I always bike everywhere, and booked it home. I was definitely a little freaked out, but tried to pull myself together and reasoned that no one could have followed me. I then deleted my Tinder profile, and things were normal for a few weeks. 
About three weeks later, I started getting phone calls. The numbers all showed up as unknown. I picked up the first few times to some guy breathing heavily into the phone. I was already a little freaked out. I stopped picking up any call unless it displayed the caller's name. I then started receiving texts. At first, they were pretty harmless. Calls for attention and begging me to meet in person. It then changed to very sexual texts until eventually the messages became threatening and whoever was messaging me started throwing out my family and friends' names and their whereabouts, saying that he or she would get them involved unless I answered. And because they were texting me, I could see a displayed number. But when I called phone providers, they told me the number couldn't be traced and that it was probably a track phone. Great. I waited about two weeks, not responding to the texts, thinking that I shouldn't feed the troll. But eventually, it became too much. I started getting upwards of 50 texts and phone calls a day. I would wake up to 10 or 20 texts every morning. I then decided to change my number altogether. The texting and calls stopped for a while, but sure enough, it started happening again. I called my phone provider asking if they ever gave out numbers at a user's request, and they said that their policy stated that they wouldn't and couldn't unless valid identification was provided. Then, one day, I tried logging into my Facebook, but I was denied. Within a day, my friends started contacting me, asking what the hell I was doing, saying that they were getting terrible messages from my account. In particular, one of my girlfriends was receiving messages about her mom, who died years ago. I apologized profusely and told people what was going on. I contacted Facebook and explained the situation, and they helped me access my account again, at which point I deactivated it for a while. Enough was enough. I decided to contact the FBI, explaining what had been going on for over a month now. They documented everything, but since I or any of my relatives or friends were in no immediate danger, they probably wouldn't be able to do anything. At that point, I felt stuck. I thought about hiring a private investigator or a hacker. I decided against it, however, and just hoped it would fade out if I never answered. I left my Facebook deactivated and ignored any texts or phone calls. I never had any trouble at home, but some of my closest friends received the occasional texts as well, which weirded us all out. I hated that they got dragged into it. One day, I came home and things felt very eerie. The door was unlocked, windows open, and no one was there. I did a check of the place and found nothing else weird, so I locked everything up and just waited for my roommates to get home. It's been almost seven months now. The calls and texts have more or less stopped. I get an occasional text, but at most, one every two weeks. At the peak of it, I was receiving almost 100 texts a day. It definitely affected my social and personal life. I became much more wary of the people around me and my surroundings. I just felt like I couldn't really focus on anything until it stopped. Work was difficult, though I tried to maintain my composure as best I could. Everything was just weird. Life was weird. I've since stopped using all forms of dating apps and websites. Things are getting back to normal at this point. I just want to put it all behind me. I'm moving at the end of this year, so... It'll be nice to have a fresh start in a new place. 
I'm not going to sit here and say all dating apps are dangerous and no one should use them, but definitely cover your bases. Ask more questions before meeting someone. FaceTime them first, Skype, anything. I was naive about it, and I regret it. Be safe, stick close to your friends, and try meeting people in more traditional ways. Weird Tinder stalker? Let's not meet. I'm Navajo, and boy, have I heard a lot of stories growing up on the reservation. While I've never actually seen anything myself, which I'm grateful for, I've benefited by being around the people who have. There is a different kind of evil that exists in the quiet high deserts and deep sandstone canyons of Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado. I can only describe it as an ancient evil. Now, there are helpful ceremonies, rituals, and traditions that are still practiced to this day. Hell, even a local hospital has an on-duty medicine man, but it seems to be a double-edged sword. What I mean is, there's also black magic, which most Navajo will not even acknowledge or speak of. We are very superstitious and are heavy with taboos. You'll find this with most First Nation people. From Alaska to Argentina, it's just something you don't do, in fear that it will get the attention of unwanted spirits or harmful beings. Skinwalkers, or Naladushi, are just a few stories that kept me up at night with the covers over my head. Here's a quick one for you guys. A Navajo tribal police officer was driving west on what used to be officially named Highway 666. It was lightly snowing, maybe a quarter of an inch, which is a lot of snow for home. And he sees an old woman walking on the side of the road. How she got there, or where she was going, was not apparent because she was so far out in the middle of nowhere. He didn't see her right away, but as he passes, he noticed she's dressed in traditional clothing. A shawl, dress, moccasins, and her hair in the traditional bun. Not too odd, many elders still choose to dress traditionally. But why was she out in such cold weather this late at night? Hitchhiking, maybe. He passed her too quickly, and now has to turn around. And as he makes a U-turn, he notices that she's nowhere to be seen. This is fairly flat terrain, and he's sure he saw an old woman walking. He pulls the squad car over and steps out with a flashlight. Confused, he manages to find the woman's footprints in the shallow snow. He follows the footprints until they suddenly turn into what look like dog paw prints, leading away from the road in a hurry. He immediately jumps back into the squad car, and meets up with another officer near his patrol. He's a little shaken up, but asks the other officer if he's ever seen anything like that. The officer tells him that he has. He also explains that sometimes it's an old woman, sometimes a very beautiful young girl, but always on that road, and always in the snow, waiting for the right good Samaritan to let her into their car. I still get nervous driving those wide open spaces at night, and I keep my eyes strictly on the road and turn my music up high. I rarely pick up hitchhikers, but I never pick them up at night. I'm a wildland firefighter with the Forest Service. Not my story, but from an old supervisor of mine that I believe completely. 
The setting is 2004 or so, Hell's Canyon area of Middle Idaho. His crew had been working all day on an emerging incident and were going to be working through the night as well. Being the assistant superintendent of the crew, second in charge effectively, he was out ahead scouting on an ATV. He was working his way down a logging road that had not been used in some time. When a bobcat or a lynx, it's been a few years since I heard the story, appears in the middle of the road, but doesn't run away as they usually would. The thing stands there for a good 10 seconds, screams at him, and scampers up a tree not 5 feet off the road. He finds this odd, but not particularly unsettling. Just a half mile or so down the road, he finds a small cabin. Also odd, as this is federal land and no private structure should be there. Upon investigation, all the windows have been boarded shut tight and someone had done a good job of doing so. The door had been punched out and secured to a hole drilled into the log frame by a chain. Someone did not want anything getting in or out. Peering through the hole in the door, he can see that everything in the house is upset. This has him kind of unsettled, so he hops on his ATV and heads back up the road. Well, here's where it gets really interesting. Right where the bobcat had been, now stands a Native American woman in a badly tattered nightgown and bare feet, just standing there. He yells at her, asking if she needs help. She just screamed at him, the same scream as the cat before, and climbs right up the tree, faster than any human has a right to be climbing. Obviously, he nopes out of there as fast as he can. Now, I would not believe most people that try to tell me something like this, but this was a serious man that did not fuck around about many things. He was dead serious the two times I've heard him tell this story, and I 100% believe that he saw what he saw. So I work at a pizza place, usually inside, as my insurance doesn't cover claims when driving for business. But occasionally, I will cover a delivery shift for one of the drivers because the money is pretty good. Our delivery area includes a few new development, upper middle class, cookie cutter neighborhoods, an older 1940s era village, two apartment complexes, some trailer parks, and a bunch of rural areas. Not rural to the point seeing hundreds of stars at night, but enough that you probably couldn't hear your neighbors yell. So. About a week ago, I was covering a delivery shift. I come back to the shop feeling pretty good. I'm averaging $5 a delivery, and they have all been pretty close, and check to see if I have any more. I have one to an address I have never seen before. We have mostly semi-regular deliveries, so an address that doesn't seem the least bit familiar is odd. It's out on one of the more rural roads. I asked the kid who took the order what was up, because there were special instructions on the ticket. He says, they said go around back because the front door is inoperational. I'm like, okay, that's not that uncommon. People often want you to go around back. Either they painted the door, the house shifted and it's a bitch to open, or they're just hanging out back. So, as I'm driving out to the house, I get this odd feeling. 
I don't really like the idea of going to the back of some house out in the sticks. It would all be too easy for some thugs to order a pizza to an abandoned house. There are quite a few in the more rural areas. And then jump the delivery guy. I figure I'll scope the place out when I get there. And if it seems sketchy, I'll just call them and make up some bull about how it's against company policy to go around the back of houses to prevent robberies. As I'm driving to the house, I realize it's towards the end of this road that gets less populated the further down you go. Great. I'm pretty close to the address and driving slow. I see this abandoned looking house set back from the road with no address and surrounded by a bunch of trees. I think, that house better not be it. So I drive past and check the next house's address and lo and behold, that abandoned looking one was the right house. Shit. At this point, I'm not super worried though, because out in the boonies, the standards of upkeep on your house are pretty low, so a house in disrepair isn't unusual. So I double back to this house and pull into the driveway. At this point, I'm getting bad vibes. It just doesn't seem right. So I park my car at the very end of the driveway, with the rear of the car on the shoulder, so anyone passing by can clearly see it. I call back to the shop and tell them I'm at this sketchy house, and if I don't call back in 4 or 5 minutes, call me, and if I don't answer, call the cops. While I'm on the phone, I take a chance to get a good look at the house. It looks extremely abandoned, and not just in disrepair. The driveway is crumbling, bits of gravel and there are weeds growing out of it. There's no mailbox, no trash cans, no car, no lawnmowers, no landscaping, kids' toys, absolutely nothing in the yard. The yard hasn't been mowed in what looks like years. The house is total crap. The roof is all but falling apart. The siding is falling apart. The back deck, which comes around the side, is falling apart. The only part of the house that looks even a little bit decent is the allegedly non-functioning front door. The windows are all shut. It's 95 degrees and humid, and this place doesn't have an AC. They all have the blinds or curtains shut. The few that aren't are actually boarded up. I don't even see any wires running to this house. It's not dark, but it's dusk, and there isn't a sign of any lights on. At this point, I'm starting to get pretty nervous. I'm a 5 foot 10 inch male, 180 pounds, not in any great shape, but... I did take karate for 10 years, so I'm not helpless. But I do try to avoid any sort of confrontation I can, as I am mostly a pacifist. I'm not too concerned about getting robbed. No skin off my teeth, it's not my money. I mean, I would rather not get robbed, but I'm mostly worried about getting jumped or killed. It's a fairly safe area, but recently, there have been some rather unsavory people moving in from the city. A big spike in home invasions and robberies, but more worrying, a few stabbings and assaults. So, it's time to either nut up or shut up. I'm not just going to go charging in there like a fool, so I get out my phone and call the number they gave me when ordering. While I'm doing that, I'm also getting the pizza out and making sure to leave my door open. A running car, half in the road in an abandoned house with the door open looks suspicious, right? I figure if shit goes down, it might look out of place enough to make someone stop. Not that there is really any traffic this far down the road, though. I'm starting to walk up to the house while the phone's ringing. It rings twice, and then an automated message comes on. 
It says something along the lines of, This phone is associated with the internet texting app. One of the free ones you download that lets you send free texts from a different phone number over a data connection. I think it was Haywire. We've had some issues with people using numbers from those services for pranks in the past. This is a huge red flag. My heart is now pounding in my throat and my whole body is telling me to bail. I don't want to get a reputation for being a flaky bitch as a driver and lose any future delivery ships. And that is why I hadn't bailed yet. So, I'm just standing there holding a pizza, looking at this house, but not wanting to venture around to the back of it. I'm hoping that the resident will look out the window and come out by the road to get their food. So I'm looking at the front windows checking for any signs of life. I see a blind go up on the one window next to the front door, and a really creepy looking guy with a hat pulled low and big sunglasses is looking out. Remember, he is in a completely dark house surrounded by trees at dusk. There is no reason for him to be wearing sunglasses. I also see what appears to be a big guy standing behind him in the room. This could have been anything though. When he sees me looking, he mouths something and darts away, presumably toward the allegedly broken front door. At this point, I nope the fuck out. I had stayed pretty close to my car so it was only a few steps away and I jumped into the driver's seat and threw the pizza into my passenger seat, something I would never usually do since I'm really anal about keeping my car clean. I slam it into reverse before I get the clutch all the way in, so I grind my gears a little, again, something I never do. Without looking, I simultaneously slam and lock my door and floor it backwards onto the main road, slipping my clutch horribly but at this point I don't care, I don't want to fuck around and risk a stall. I didn't even check for cross traffic, really stupid on my part. I start to drive away and look back at the house. The screen door and the outside of the front door is now open, but the front door is still shut. The guy isn't out in the front yard yelling, wait, come back or anything. He's just gone. So I pull over a little ways up the road to call back to the shop and tell them that I'm all good and I'll elaborate when I get back. The people never call back to inquire about their food. People usually call if their pizza is 15 minutes late, and these people never got it, so it's really strange they didn't call, pretty much confirming they were up to no good. After telling my co-workers about it, we conclude it was definitely a robbery at the very least. So we put the address and phone number on our no deliveries list and ate their pizza. I doubt I would have actually gotten murdered or anything, robbed, with maybe a gun pulled, or a little roughing up, yes, but... It was still very unnerving that I easily could have gotten into some serious trouble by just doing my job, especially if the idiots picked a slightly less abandoned house to set up at. Anyone who delivers pizza should be wary of situations like this. I looked into it, and apparently it's a pretty common way to rob pizza guys. I'm pretty glad that we did not end up meeting. The wind began to pick up as we left, biting into my overexposed skin. Even though it was summer, the camp was perched high in the Appalachian Mountains, a fact that I had overlooked when wearing a short-sleeved shirt. I did not mind that much. After all, the chill only added to the atmosphere of the event that night, the graveyard hike. There were many hikes during the week-long duration of the camp, but this was the only one exclusive to teens. 
the ones who went would be prepared for a couple of scary stories told by the graveyard. Then, an obviously staged scare on the walk back, the counselors playing it off as real. This year, there were a fair number of teens, maybe 15. Two counselors, a guy and a girl, led us from the front, while another, a guy, hung in the back to contain the group. We mostly joked and talked about our time so far at the camp, but once in every while, someone would lower their voice and ask one of the questions on everyone's minds. What stories would they tell? What would the cheesy scare be this time? Oh, how I wish I had just gotten a cheesy scare. As we neared the graveyard, I noticed how permeating the darkness was. A thick layer of clouds obscured any chance of starlight or moonlight. The small circles beamed by our flashlights helped, but did not last far into the fern-choked forest on either side of the road. After a bit longer, the forest melted away on the right side, opening into a circular clearing. Waist-high grass undulated in the wind like a sea of snakes trying to writhe out of the earth. Enclosing the area were hundreds of trees, the ever-wasteful sentinels of the night. A thin dirt path wove through the grass to a small rectangle of parched white fence. I could just see slivers of stone peeking through the posts. This is it. Sarah, one of the counselors at the front, announced at the mouth of the path. Up ahead is the graveyard. Stay on the trail and look down at your feet. We don't want anyone stepping on a rattlesnake tonight. Also, please be respectful to the dead. You don't want to upset any spirits. I did a mental eye roll on that last part. Once we arrived at the fence line, we gathered around the entrance. Within were only about ten graves illuminated by our flashlights. Time had worn down the slabs of stone to a point that the words carved into them were barely readable. The years were all in the 1800s. No flowers or objects respected the dead, only a bed of short-trimmed grass. All three counselors guarded the entrance. Jake, who had been at the back during the hike, cleared his throat. Excitement filled his eyes as he began to speak, though his expression and voice remained flat. Turn off your flashlights. Some of the new teens groaned, but the rest of us knew this happened every time. We just assumed the counselors were a good atmosphere. A few clicks later, and we were plunged into suffocating darkness with only Jake's voice. He began by explaining the family the graveyard belonged to. The introduction told every year. It was short and simple, but got the mood set. He then started the stories, telling many of them that night. He spoke methodically, not missing a single detail. Most were ones I had heard years before, except for the last. After finishing the tale of the white lady, Jake let silence hold a moment and then spoke again. Here's my last story for tonight, The Shadow Man. Upon hearing this, my interest peaked. I had not been exposed to this story yet. He took a deep breath and began. Many years ago, before the camp was built, this part of the mountains was home to a small town. Back then, it was customary for the bride and groom to be separated for a week and then meet at the ceremony to be married. There was a particular couple that got very unlucky. You see, the day they were supposed to meet back together, a raging storm hit. This was a time long before cars existed, so the only way to travel was by horse. It was understood that storms would not stop weddings, 
so the bride and groom set out that morning for the church. The groom arrived quite wet, but fine and on time. The bride, she never arrived. A crash of thunder must have spooked her horse, causing the beast to gallop in a panic, eventually falling. Not only did the coachman get crushed by his horse, but the bride's neck snapped when the carriage fell violently on its side. The groom and everyone in the ceremony waited for hours and hours, but no sign of the bride appeared. Many got worried, and a search party was ordered. When the news of the bride's death reached the groom, he fell into a grief so great he could not take living without his love. He went back to the church alone, and there he hung himself. Jake paused for a moment, letting the silence sink in. His tone was completely flat when he continued. That very church used to be in the field we stand in now. Nothing strange was reported for many years. This is, until the church was demolished a couple decades back. Since then, an entity known as the Shadow Man has been sighted all over camp by many people, including staff members. He is only seen at night, in the shadows of the forest, as a tall silhouette and nothing else, a hollow remainder of his humanity. Rumor has it, he'll steal young girls away in the night, thinking they're his wife. When he sees they aren't his love, he slits their throats in rage, leaving their bodies to rot in the woods. Yet another moment of dramatic silence. Then Jake spoke one last time, in a weirdly excited tone. Well, that's all I have tonight. You can turn your flashlights back on now. Just like that, the stories were over. The other counselors assumed their lead of the group as we walked back. It seemed no one else had heard that story before, as we discussed it heavily. Was it believable? Not really. Was it creepy? It must have been, since the girls were huddled in a pack, scanning the trees warily. It was around the point when we were moving on to a different conversation, when one of the lead counselors looked back. It was Sarah, a confused look passing over her. Hey, where's Jake? He's supposed to be behind you guys. I immediately thought the scare had begun, and that Jake would burst out of the trees at any moment in a wild panic, claiming to have seen the Shadow Man. But the other two counselors had genuine confusion in their eyes, which turned into fear when no one knew where he was. They began to call on their walkie-talkies, but when Jake did not answer, they turned to shouting into the woods, frantically. I realized then that this might not be a scare. After about five minutes of nothing, the counselors decided to split up. Sarah would lead the teens back to camp, while the other counselor, George, would continue to search for Jake. At this point, I was terrified myself. The staff had never been good actors during their graveyard hikes, and these would have to have been terrific performances if this was a scare. George dove into the forest as we left, flashlight erratically swinging light left to right as it faded into the distance. Sarah seemed to be on the brink of tears, and became more hysterical every moment as she sputtered information to the other staff from her walkie-talkie. We were huddled in the center of the road, walking quickly, flashlights pointing in all directions. My mind grew more paranoid until every shadow in the forest looked like a man. I was at the edge of the group when it all went to hell. Without warning, a small cylindrical object sailed out of the forest into the middle of our group. It struck a girl on her head, causing her to scream. I did not get a moment to process what was happening when a blinding flash and deafening bang went off at once. My senses were overloaded as I clutched my head in agony. Right then, a sharp pain struck my right temple, 
and the world winked out into blackness. I woke up staring at the stars. I tried to rise, but quickly I realized I could not. Tight leather constricted my limbs, binding them to a rough slab of rock. Hot blood oozed from where my temple had been struck, along with a pain that thudded with every heartbeat. Immediately, I began to panic, writhing in my bonds. Is this real? Why am I here? Oh God. Oh God, how do I escape? Oh, there he goes. A shrill voice called nearby, sending a chill through my body and stopping me dead in my struggling. The voice sounded vaguely familiar. I strained my neck to look up and was horrified by what I saw. I was surrounded by walls of shoddily nailed together logs, illuminated only by a couple of oil lamps sitting on the exposed dirt. An opening was at the opposing side, a kind of door. Lying on one wall were so many bags of canned food and water that a person could last months on them. An oak table sat simply in the middle of the room with dozens of knives, daggers, surgical tools, scissors, wooden clubs, and even sharpened sticks sprawled all over. Numerous flashbangs were under the table in neat rows. Behind the table, facing me was Jake, with a maniacal grin plastered on his face and a gleam of excited insanity in his eyes. His black hair, which had been cleanly groomed beforehand, stuck in all directions as if a wild animal had perched on his head. Though, his shirt and jeans were surprisingly smooth and clean, a detail I had never noticed before now. I wanted to scream, to shout, to break my bonds, to run the hell out of there. But I didn't move. I was in shock. My own counselor? He seemed so normal. Why'd you stop? He called, mildly disappointed. He paused, as if to let me answer, but I was too petrified to say anything. Am I really that scary? I haven't even cut you yet. He giggled like a child, his grin widening. Boy, am I ready to cut. Jake the teen counselor had just been an act. This was the real Jake. He began to lightly touch each blade on the table, muttering to himself as to which one he should start with. This would have been the time to scream. Any time would have been the time to scream. But within, I felt it would have been useless. He had not bound my mouth. He wanted me to scream. I must have been miles deep in the forest, too far for anyone to hear me. He chose a particularly long knife, one with serrated edges. This will work just fine. He began to approach me. Then I saw him. The Shadow Man. In the doorway, there appeared the silhouette of a man, so utterly black that it redefined the word. His very presence seemed to drain the light out of the room like a black hole devouring a star. His form had undefined edges. His being melted into the reality around him, leaving trails of wispy black smoke. I became convinced in that moment that whatever that thing was, it had no soul, no life. My eyes left Jake and flew straight to the Shadow Man, a new form of terror entering my brain. The Shadow Man took a step into the room, trailing blackness. The lamp closest to the door winked out in a harsh sizzling sound. Jake heard. He turned. He dropped the knife, his eyes growing wide, his mouth gaping open. He backed away, sputtering nonsense. No, 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 no. You're, you're not real. You're, you're just a story. The shadow man did not appear phased. He took a huge step forward, 
The other lamp broke. Though complete darkness shrouded the room, the Shadow Man was an entirely different kind of darkness. I could see him clearly, but nothing else. I saw his arms flail wildly where Jake had been. Oh God, I heard so many things. I heard shrill screams, louder and filled with more pain than I had ever heard before. I heard meaty crunches and spraying liquid. I heard thumps on the dirt and walls as chunks of something flew into them. The screams morphed into gurgling with each sound. Before I knew it, the sounds were over, and I was drenched in a warm liquid. The Shadow Man paused for a moment, and then, in a moment of sinking terror, he began to advance toward me. My heart beat faster than I had thought possible. Every muscle tensed, straining against my bonds with all my strength. I closed my eyes, but could somehow still see his image. As his hand stretched toward me, I prepared for the worst. But he released me. My bonds unlatched and my limbs suddenly became free. I opened my eyes, but it made no difference. Once again, I was frozen in shock. He strode to where I guessed the doorway was and paused. Though he had no eyes, I felt he was looking at me waiting for me to come. I hesitantly rose from the slab of stone, cautiously setting my feet on the ground. I stepped in a pool of liquid, thick and sticky. I recoiled, but forced myself to continue. Standing up, I reached my hands out for a wall. My fingers met the same thick liquid on the logs. Every step was a nightmare. Squish, squish. I kept my eyes glued to the shadow man, my foot met a slimy mass. I quickly stepped over it. After forever, I made it to the doorway. The shadow man, standing directly in front of me, raised a finger pointing directly to the left. Then he disappeared, melting away into the night. I turned to where he had pointed and thoughtlessly stumbled for hours. Eventually, I made it back to camp, covered in blood. In 1970, I was serving as a corporal in the U.S. Army and deployed to South Vietnam in a region about 30 miles south of the DMZ. At the time, I was second in command of a squad of soldiers. We had set up a biovac in a jungle area that had a few steep hills. That evening, my section was ordered to patrol one of the small valleys west of the encampment. We moved out, led by our sergeant. Not long after entering one of the small valleys, we detected movement ahead of us. It seemed to be scattered activity, so we doubted it was VC, but we weren't positive. We hunkered down for about 15 minutes, getting occasional glimpses of something moving within the trees and brush. There wasn't enough light to detect what we were observing, even though the moonlight was pretty bright that night. After a while, the activity halted, so we continued to move slowly through the valley. As we approached a sheer wall on the hill, it looked like someone or something had stacked large stones and boulders in the pass in front of us. There was also an opening in the hillside that looked like a cave entrance, approximately 5 foot high and 3 foot wide, narrowing at the top. When observing the passageway, it appeared to have been cut away by machinery. The edges were smooth, with small, even-spaced grooves. We were puzzled because 
that we had never seen enemy caves like this, just underground tunnels. The sergeant suggested that it may be a VC supply depot, so we started to assess how we were going to investigate the cave. About this time, things got very strange. We began to notice a putrid odor emanating from the cave entrance. The only thing I can compare it to was rotting eggs and human decay. It was so revolting that a few of the soldiers were becoming ill and started to back away into the jungle, including the sergeant. I was directing the light into the entrance in order to observe her anything, but there was a haze that was impossible to see through. We had no idea what was before us. The entire squad took a position in the heavy brush, approximately 150 feet from the entrance, far enough not to be detected, but close enough to observe the cave entrance. We quietly remained there for what seemed like forever. The jungle was strangely calm, even though we heard rumbling sounds coming from the distance. It was really eerie. The sergeant was sitting near me talking to himself. It was obvious that he was frightened. I was looking at the rest of the squad. Each had wide eyes and was scanning the area. No one was going to doze off during this patrol. After several hours, dawn was approaching and it started to lighten up. I checked my watch. It was just before 5am. Just then, we noticed movement in the front of the cave. A being. I first thought it was a man. Moved through the entrance into the clearing in front of the cave. As it stood up from a crouch, it stood at least seven feet high and it started to look in our direction. At that time, another similar looking creature was moving out of the cave. They were making these hellish hissing sounds and looking directly at us. The only way I can describe these beings is that they look like upright lizards. Their scaly, shiny skin was very dark, almost black. Snake-like faces with forward-set eyes that were very large. They had arms and legs like a human, but with scales. I didn't notice any tails, though they wore long, one-piece dark green robes, along with a dark cap-like covering on their heads. I never noticed if they had anything on their feet. No one gave the order. It seemed like the entire squad opened fire at once. Every piece of vegetation between us and them was quickly sheared away. I yelled out a ceasefire order. At the same time, I was looking in the direction of the cave. There was nothing there. We immediately checked our flank in case they had circled around us, but there was nothing. As we approached the cave, ready to resume action if needed, it became apparent that the beings had escaped, most likely back into the cave. It was soon decided to set charges and close the cave entrance. When we returned to camp, we all seemed to be in a daze. There was little discussion of the incident, and we were never debriefed, so I know the sergeant never filed a report. This took place in 2013. After graduating college, I was about to embark on a summer-long road trip that I had been planning for over a year. At the last minute, my friends bailed on me, but being the adventurous sort, I decided to not let it stop me. 
so I packed up the guitar and went on my way. This is how I came to be a 26-year-old girl, road-tripping it across the country alone. Since I was very poor, I was camping in national forests or rest stops and living out of a borrowed minivan. All was going pretty well, and I was having the time of my life. However, a few months in, I had made it to California and was traveling around the San Francisco area. One night, I was looking for a new place to camp out and found myself on a Bay Area highway wrought with unusual detours. Because the detours were confusing and poorly marked, I found myself driving through a small town, uncertain if I was still following the detour or not. It was about 9pm, but since it was a small town, no one seemed to be out to ask directions from. I tried to use my phone, but the signal was crummy and my phone sucked to begin with. Figures, I mumbled, and threw my useless phone on the passenger seat. It seemed I was getting out of town and into some kind of warehouse district, but I could see the highway up ahead in the distance, so I decided to head towards it. The single road I was on led me through rows of factories, but there was nowhere to turn off. I still was headed towards the highway, so I kept on. I passed a large, older car. I'm terrible at identifying cars, but it's the kind you would call a boat. A very cool, classic car kind of thing. In the parking lot of the factory. When I passed, he switched on his headlights and pulled out behind me. I honestly didn't think anything of it. I figured the poor guy was lost too, and followed me thinking I knew where I was going. I continue on for a while, with him still behind me, and I finally reach where the highway passes over the road. Much to my dismay, I turned a corner into a gravel lot of sorts that did end it into a fence, right underneath the highway. This is where it gets creepy. The gravel area was about two lanes wide, with the large car pulled up behind me, directly in the middle so I couldn't get around him. This raised an immediate red flag, but I tried to convince myself that he was just a lost guy, and his parking in an inconvenient way was merely an accident. However, I didn't want to get out of the van and ask him to move, so I began trying to come up with a plan. I pulled a little farther towards the fence, as if trying to make a U-turn. I already knew there would not be enough room, but what he did next frightened me. As the nose of my van came up against the fence, he pulled up to the fence too, at an angle, blocking me from going any further. Now, I knew he was up to no good, and now, I could get a look at him, as we were very close to each other. He had on a baseball cap, and he had a crazy ZZ Top style beard. To give you a picture, I was in the right of the two lanes, with the crazy man blocking me to the left, and to my right were three cement pylons, which you usually see blocking off highway construction, running the length of the lot with about a car's width, not length, but width, in between them. Here's why I take a bow to the gods of dumb luck, as I saw something in those pylons that most would not. You see, prior to this road trip, I had spent eight years as a bus driver, and much of that time was spent training new drivers. One of the maneuvers on the commercial driving test in my state 
was called the backward serpentine. To pass, you had to back the bus through three cones positioned in a straight line. Since the cones are only a bus width apart, not length, you must turn at exactly the right time to master this move. It was very similar to what I was looking at now, although doing it with cones is a little different than a cement block, because if I crash in a cement block, I would certainly not be able to drive out of there, and who knows what this man had in mind. I gunned it in reverse, keeping the maneuver I had taught so many times in my head. Keep in mind, driving tests are graded on accuracy, not speed. So this was the first time I had ever had to do this fast. By the time I had made it around the second pylon, he had realized what was happening, but because he had a big car and was pushed up against the fence, it took him a few wiggles to get turned around. By then, I completed my maneuver and took the fuck off back down the road. He followed, but there was no way to know if he was chasing me or fleeing, as there was only one way in or out of this place. I was scared because I was still lost, and I didn't know if this man knew the area or if he had picked this spot to wait for lost tourists. So I wasn't out of the woods yet. Pumped full of adrenaline, I screamed out the open window. You picked the wrong girl to play driving games with, motherfucker. I then heard a tiny robotic voice say, No results for driving games, motherfucker. I was confused for a minute, and then remembered the useless navigator on my phone, which I had discarded. It had been flung to the floor of the passenger side during the ordeal, and I wasn't about to stop and grab it, so I just began screaming, I-80! at the top of my lungs. Finally, the phone heard me and gave me directions back to the highway. I drove around the area highways, stopping at gas stations to observe the other vehicles getting off at least a few times to make sure I wasn't being followed. Luckily, it was a pretty distinctive car, but I still did this for over an hour before I felt safe enough to camp out. So, creepy bearded man, let's not meet. I use Tinder pretty frequently, and it's usually cool. Just meeting people, chilling, smoking with most of them. So I matched with this dude named Charlie, and he seems cool. He's really cute, and he plays music, which is really appealing to me, as I also sing and play piano. We talk for a little while, and I agree to meet him at his house. Mistake number one. Why did I think it was a good idea to meet a stranger in their own home? I don't drive. So I take an Uber over, and it's a decent way away, so it's kind of pricey. When he buzzes me into the apartment complex, I get this really creepy vibe, but I shook it off his nerves. I go up to the third floor, and he's standing at the door. Things are cool, we're just chilling. We smoked a couple of bowls and we're watching a movie. So, he makes a move on me, and I go with it. We end up on the bed, and we're obviously engaging in adult activities, when, out of nowhere, he wraps his hands around my neck. Hard. Now, that's all fine and good with me. I mean, I can dig that in the right setting. But, alone in a stranger's house, when he didn't even check to see if it was cool, is not one of those settings. So, I literally can't breathe, and I'm fairly certain I'm turning blue at this point. And he is just relentless. 
Not only is he asphyxiating me, he's now yelling in my face, Are you scared? With this wild look in his eyes. And I'm like, Fuck yes, I'm scared. You're trying to kill me right now. I started to struggle, and he was gripping even harder. I'm not even kidding, you guys. I seriously thought I was going to die. And by some miracle, I wriggle out of his grasp and start screaming. He's yelling at me to calm down, and I'm frantically trying to put my clothes on. He grabs my wrist as I'm trying to leave, and I use all my strength to pull away and slam the door. As it was closing, the charming fella bid me adieu, with the words, Fucking cunt. I get home, and I look in the mirror, and I have hella bruises on my neck. I try to cover it up with makeup to no avail. I straight up look like I was almost strangled to death. Then he texts me, saying, I think you need more than one dick. And I'm like, oh really? You want to bring a friend and kill me together? (laughs) How lovely. Anyways, I blocked him and reported him on Tinder. I wish I could have done more, because I seriously think he would have killed me. I've been debating going to the police, but the bruises are gone, and it's a he said, she said thing. But I'm really starting to wonder if I should, because the next girl might not be so lucky. A zero out of ten would not attempted murder again. Crazy strangler tender dude, let's not meet. I see it when I close my eyes. It is a world not unlike our own. The streets are littered with ash and debris. The poor souls that haven't been consumed by the flames scurry like rats as the shadows chase them into the darkness. It's a darkness that defies comprehension. The light is an illusion created by the mind in an attempt to rationalize the darkness that has consumed the soul. The air reeks of sulfur and burning flesh. The screams of the tortured created a cacophony that serves to destroy any hope that might remain. I see this and I smile. In a fraction of a moment, I feel the wind enter my nostrils and watch the patches of flesh that remain on my chest light up like embers catching air. It burns me to my core, and for a brief moment, I forget that I'm alive. There was a certain comfort to knowing what awaits me, and as morbid as it might sound, simply knowing that I will continue is a comfort that eased my troubled mind. Perhaps, that was the point of my life. I suffered unending pain so that I could prepare myself for what was to come. I've been there. These visions aren't dreams or delusions. They are memories. I died once. My tolerance for drugs and alcohol borders on legendary, but it was no match for the bender I charged into after Louise. My heart ultimately stopped in protest. The light faded from my eyes, and the breath left my lungs one last time. The paramedics would later say that I flatlined in the ambulance. I was pronounced dead on arrival. I don't rightly remember it, but I can only imagine a look of shock when I shot up from that gurney in the middle of the emergency room. I've read several accounts of near-death experiences. I cannot speak for anyone else, but there was no light at the end of the tunnel. I wasn't met by family or friends. I saw neither pearly gates nor winged men with golden crowns. No. I went to hell. I know exactly where I went and why. 
Men as wretched as myself don't live eternally in bliss. I knew why I was there. I understood my place in the universe. Unlike most of the pathetic waste of spirit that end up there, I was content in my final destination. Actually, I miss it sometimes. That was more than six years ago. I suppose the mechanical elves that run the universe weren't content to let me join the Forever 27 Club. I wasn't famous by any means, but I had published a book and put out a few albums. Hipsters still trade copies of my albums on vinyl, as if they are listening to something arcane. Even still, I'm 33 years old, and I work in a factory. I have a decent apartment in a small town, and a fiancé that is convinced I'm the best thing since sliced bread. I could probably argue that with her, but I lack the desire to chase her off. As I meander through life, I cannot help but try to rationalize those visions away. Clearly, I didn't go to hell. My mind, creative as it might be, filled in the gaps for the time I was out. My tortured psyche decided on self-flagellation and damnation rather than some self-indulgent statement on redemption. I could go with the rational answers, but I've long since accepted rational thinking for the cognitive distortion that it is. Humans are not rational creatures. We are hairless apes with a superiority complex and a predisposition to vanity. Part of me wants to believe the rational thoughts and ignore the cynical attitudes I have towards rational answers, but I cannot seem to grasp it. For example, I still smoke. My dentist identified more than 20 lesions on my gums. Hyperkeratosis is what he called it. He referred to them as precancerous. I was told that if I didn't quit smoking, I would develop oral cancer in as little as a year. That was months ago. Even as I write this, an ash grows longer as the cigarette rests between my fingers. Eventually, I'll move my thumb up to hit the space bar, and it will fall under the keys like so many before it. I know that smoking is going to kill me. I can rationally approach the issue and understand that I'm going to die. I can apply all the intellect and sound thinking necessary to make a plan that leads to total cessation of nicotine use. The whole time, I will be smoking as I write up the notes. I am capable of rational thought, but rational action is not in my nature. I'm a creature that exists in a perpetual state of self-destruction. How I managed to live this long is still a mystery. The other day, I was moving a pallet of cabinets towards the loading dock when I felt my phone vibrate in my pocket. I'm not supposed to have it on the loading dock, so I went about my business for a moment before ducking into the restroom. My fiancé had messaged me on Facebook. It was a simple picture. A dinner roll rested on a metal grate. It took a moment for me to register that the grate was inside the oven at our house. It took a few more moments to register that she had intended to let me know that there was a bun in the oven. I finished out my shift and drove home considerably faster than usual. I walked in the door to see a plastic stick with two red lines sitting on the counter. I was overjoyed. Miriam and I hadn't been planning on children so soon, but I was happy to share the experience with her nonetheless. She poked her head out of the bedroom with a look of cautious anticipation as I pulled her into my arms and kissed her on the forehead. 
We spent the rest of that night snuggled up on the couch, making out like teenagers. I suppose there was a reason I was so keen on keeping her around. She was everything I had ever wanted in a woman. Miriam was tall and slender. Her red hair and green eyes adorned an angular face with high cheekbones and naturally pouty lips. She was as delicate as she was soft-spoken. Despite all of this, the woman could sing like a goddess. She preferred to dress like a pinup model. It wasn't uncommon to see her walking around the house, like an even mix of June Cleaver and Betty Page. All of this while dancing through the house, singing old jazz songs like they had never gone out of style. She was everything that I had ever hoped for in a woman, and she was completely mine. The thought of having a child with her left me in a state of bliss I hadn't considered possible. The following day at work, I was telling a few of my coworkers the good news when I blinked. A hundred milliseconds might have passed in the real world, but I was suddenly hit with the realization that I was back there. The charred flesh on my torso glowed as my panicked breathing fired up the embers at my core. The light from the fire inside me grew brighter as the pain intensified. This terrible place had been my comfort zone. But in that moment, it became a living nightmare. My eyes shot open, and I was hit with a thousand years of pain and suffering in one small moment. I fell to my knees. The foreman saw me fall and wouldn't take no for an answer. As I tried to explain it away, he said, I don't want you giving half the doc whatever you got. Go home. Come back when you feel better. Two hours into my shift, and I was already on the drive home. My mouth was unnaturally dry. I downed two bottles of coconut water in the gas station and paid for them at the counter. Even still, I couldn't quench my thirst. This ultimately ended in a visit to a local pub. The beer was sweet on my lips, and it seemed to make a dent in the growing thirst. Five or six beers in, and I got the wild idea to drive home. In 33 years of life, I had never seen the underside of a buzz off a six-pack. I climbed behind the wheel of my van and turned the key in the ignition. I was five miles down the road when my eyes grew heavy. I nodded off for half a second and found myself engulfed in flames. My screams were lost and those that surrounded me. The chaos that surrounded me made it impossible to differentiate which desperate cry in that darkness was my own. It all blended together into a song of torment that even most sadists would find disheartening. My eyes opened just in time to see myself swerving into oncoming traffic. I overcorrected and I found myself in a ditch on the side of the road. Thankfully, I was able to pull out and drive home. Miriam stood in the kitchen making tea as I flopped onto the couch and tried not to blink. She was so good at reading me. Before I could say a word, she had nuzzled into my lap like a cat and ran her fingers along the underside of my chin. With those slender fingers running through my beard, I instinctively closed my eyes and found myself surrounded by the encroaching darkness. A thousand hands pulled at my charred skin and ripped it from my bones as a voice whispered in my ear. There it is. We were wondering how long it would take. My eyes opened, and I stood quickly. Miriam fell to the floor as I got up. Her sudden yelp of surprise was drowned out by my screams. I ran into the bathroom and jumped into the shower. As I sat in the bottom of the tub, 
Each blink showed the water sizzling into vapor before it could touch my flesh. The steam carried the scent of burnt meat. When my eyes were open, I could see Miriam standing over me, begging me to tell her what was wrong. When they were closed, I could see a wretched hag of creature, taunting me. The hag kept saying, You let yourself hope. Now you belong to us. Each taunt caused me to well up with anger. By this point, reality was a relative term. The living world and the underworld flickered in my field of vision with the frequency of a strobe light. I stared at the hag with its wicked smile as it seamlessly flickered with Miriam looking even more concerned. I reached out and grabbed the hag by the hair and slammed that old bitch's head against the stone wall behind her in a fit of rage. Moments later, I was standing over Miriam's body. Blood pooled on the floor around her red hair. Her chest had stopped moving. Her once perfect face had caved under the pressure of the blow. Faced with the reality of the situation, I desperately closed my eyes, hoping to see the pain and torment of the world below. Nothing. I only saw darkness. I pressed my eyes harder and saw shapes and colors that faded back to darkness over time. I stumbled back into the shower and let the water wash over me as I watched blood congeal around that once angelic face. Eventually, the harsh reality of the situation had sank in. I turned off the shower and rose to my feet. I had allowed myself to feel hope. I had allowed myself to believe for a moment that I could be normal. I had allowed myself to think that I could be a better father than the bastard that impregnated my mother. There it was, laid out before me. The mother of a child that would never be born died for no other reason than loving me. I'd much rather face the burning torment now. I'd rather suffer a thousand lifetimes of torture than live in this harsh reality. To have everything I'd ever wanted taken away in a moment. That's my hell. No sooner than I realized this, a voice whispered, The fire doesn't work for everyone. Glad we found a good fit for you. Real or not, I don't care. I loved her. Part of me hopes that she's somewhere pleasant. The rest of me knows better. If she ever existed, she was probably never mine. A character in a delusion meant to show me enough contentment and hope that I could properly feel pain. As I write this, I cannot help but question if I ever woke up from that bender in 2010. Maybe I died. Maybe I'm alive. I'll never know, and I no longer care. To live in a world without her, that is my hell. It was a Wednesday night at my college, and me and some friends were bored, so we decided to take a trip from our school to Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut. If you've ever been there, you'll know that Foxwoods is on an Indian reservation in what can accurately be described as the middle of nowhere. There is absolutely nothing around besides the casino, save some old houses. We got to the casino around 10pm, three girls and two guys, and played some blackjack. Around 2am, we call it quits and decide to head back to campus, which is about a two-hour drive. The fog was really bad that night. New England fog is the worst. Then, it starts to rain, 
and driving in that was no fun. I'm driving, my boy's in the passenger seat, and the three girls are in the back. The girls, being girls, start to comment on how dark and dreary it was outside. Also, they start to play with the Native American spiritual aspect of where we were, getting themselves all worked up. Me and my boy in the front thought it was funny, more concerned with how we were going to spend the money we just won in blackjack. My old GPS usually said to get on a main road, and main road in Connecticut means a road with some buildings near it, right away. But I was using a new one, and it said to take a different route. I was curious if there was a faster way back to the main highway, so I followed the new path. As I was making a left turn, the girls all screamed at once. I wonder what's up, and I notice what we're turning into. Even for Nowheresville, this road was scary. There were no houses, just woods on either side, and although the road was paved, it was not well developed. Still, my GPS said we were on it for only one mile before we got on the highway, so I told the girls to relax. It was tough to see through the rain and fog, so I had to go slow. This wasn't fun. I noticed that there was a creepy pond to our right, and we could hear noises in the woods around us. My boy told them it was just some Connecticut deer, but they were all starting to get actually scared, not just playing around. And honestly, so did I. I realized that if my car were ever to break down in this scary of a place, I was going to shit myself. But my GPS said 0.2 miles and we were out of there. And then, that's when the girl screamed again. I looked up. All of a sudden, the road ended and the woods began. This wasn't just some construction or something. The road just came to an end. The trees and such just started, and there was nowhere else to go but back. At this point, I got really frightened. There were no houses or light posts around. Just blackness besides my headlights. Now, I needed to make a complete 180 to turn around and go all the way back. And I turned my head around to look through my back windshield to make sure I wasn't hitting anything. And I saw the girls' faces start to quiver. I knew they were ready to scream again, but I didn't know what about. I turned around. And at the end of the road, staring back at us, was a dog. A skinny, brown-colored dog of decent overall size. It was sitting right in front of us, no more than ten feet away. And although the fog and rain were bad, we could see it clearly with my headlights on. And then, I noticed it moving, but not toward us. It hopped up on its back legs and stood upright in a very human way. At this point, everyone was silent, and I knew I couldn't just kick it in reverse because there was a nearby pond, and I didn't want to drive into it. I thought about running it over. I mean, I love animals, trust me, but if you were ever in this situation, you would think about it too. The dog didn't get back on all fours. Instead, it continued to stare. A blank, dark stare right at us. I watched as it moved its front paws toward each other, slowly, and then it began to clap. I swear to God, it just stood there and clapped, slowly, staring at us. Finally, to cap off the creepiness, it sported this deranged smile, as if it was the end for us, 
in more than one way. I couldn't take it anymore. I turned my head around, put the car in reverse, and did a 180. I sped my way out of there as fast as I could drive until we hit the main road. The ride all the way back to school was nerve-wracking. I have never felt so relieved to be back in my dorm. Needless to say, I'll never go back to Foxwoods. Never again. So, backstory. I've died before. No, not in a reincarnation kind of way. I mean, this body has been dead before. I was 14 years old, and it was the summer of 2003. I went with my cousin to a friend's house when I was staying with my aunt for the week. His friends and sisters by the names of Erica and Angela were very nice, and they had a huge backyard with a pool. Naturally, like any kids in the middle of the blazing summer, the pool was the obvious choice of what to do with our day. There was only one issue. I couldn't swim. But the pool was shallow on one end, so I figured if I just stayed in the shallow part, no one would know that I was the only non-swimmer. I was a 14-year-old boy who didn't want to be embarrassed in front of two really pretty girls in bathing suits. Of course I didn't say anything about my lack of ability. So we change into swim clothes and jump in. Erica and I splashed in the shallow end while my cousin Dre and Angela jumped off the diving board into the deeper end. Erica, though she could swim, was afraid of the diving board and was more than happy to stay with me until they were done with it to avoid getting jumped on. The afternoon went on and the sisters went inside to get snacks for us. Dre thought it would be a good idea for us to play volleyball in the pool with one of those cheap inflatable balls. We had no net, but we made it work. Until Dre hit the ball at a weird angle and I went for it. I felt the incline of the pool dip beneath my feet as I began to slide into deeper water and before I could do anything, I couldn't keep my head above. I remember my cousin screaming for help. I outweighed my cousin by a good 40 pounds, and he knew he couldn't lift me out of the water himself. I remember flailing around, trying to get to the air above my head. And, as weird as it sounds, I remember the last sound before I went under the last time, being footsteps, slow and deliberate. The next thing I know, I'm sitting at what can only be described as a school desk. I'm in a room that appears to be all white. I can't even tell it's a room, as there seemed to be no variation between the walls, floor, and ceiling. It felt like a vast space, with nothing around me for miles. I hear voices, talking a language I don't know. Part of me feels like I was dreaming, but it was too real. I could feel my body, the chair beneath me, the desk under my hands. After what feels like hours, hearing this talking but seeing no one to accompany the voice, the room just... changes. The desk and chair vanish, and I am floating on air. The white of the room darkens very quickly to a dingy gray, like the color of the sky just before rain. And I hear those footsteps again. I see a man approach me. He seems normal enough, if not dressed fairly formal. Three-piece suit and tie, all a shade of gray one tone darker than the room, except a black dress shirt, clean-shaven and fair-skinned. To be honest, he looked like a guy you'd see in a catalog for a high-priced clothing store, 
he was man pretty. As he gets closer, I can see he's smiling. A perfect toothpaste commercial smile is somehow comforting and scary as hell at the same time. I knew something wasn't right, but I couldn't place it. He looks me square in the eye, with his smile never changing, as if he's waiting for me to speak. I ask the only obvious question, where am I? To my surprise, he spoke English, unlike the other voices I heard. Oh, you will figure that out. Bad luck with the pool, I see. I nod my head, though I am completely confused. How could he know about the pool? Well, the good news is you can float now. At that moment, I realized I wasn't floating on air, but on the surface of water. The water was so still I hadn't noticed it until it was mentioned, and I'm resting afloat in a perfectly still, endless expanse of water. I realized this man was standing on it. Am I dead? Are... are you God? I muttered. I guess I had really died in that pool and was now in heaven. I was a little shocked since I never believed in anything I had been told of death or afterlife. But I figured if I'd made it to heaven, then my lack of belief was no harm, no foul. Oh no, dear boy. I'm just going to be watching you swim for a while. Just lie back and enjoy it. And I did. Floating on the water felt so cool and refreshing. I could never swim or float before, so now I could understand why people did it so frequently. For a moment, I felt complete comfort and was even able to ignore the awe feeling I had about the man and his smile. I heard him laugh. It was almost carefree, the kind of laugh you hear in commercials trying to sell you something. So perfect that it must be fake. Now, I knew something was off with that sound. I looked up, but he was gone. I could still hear his laugh, but he was nowhere to be seen. At that point, I noticed the water wasn't cool anymore. It felt warm. Still trying to rationalize, I figured I had just gotten used to it. Until I felt the temperature continue to rise. At first it felt okay, but it kept rising and rising. Warm to hot. Painfully hot. I tried to move, but couldn't make my muscles respond. Hotter still. Unbearably painfully hot. And I felt the water start to move. Even hotter, and it clicked. The water was boiling. I felt myself being thrashed around, feeling the searing hot pain of the water. It lasted for hours, days, years. Nothing but blinding pain. It was real, and I wanted to die a thousand times over just to end the pain. I thought I would go mad from it. Then, all at once, the water was cool and calm again. I gasped at the relief. My mind thanked God over and over, and despite being still in the water, I calmed down to my previous peaceful mindset. Just when I relaxed and felt the calm reach every corner of me, the temperature began to rise again. I panicked, but again could do nothing as I felt it go from cool to warm, warm to hot, hot to boiling, and felt my body thrashed around as the boiling bubbles danced beneath and around me. I couldn't talk. Even the muscles in my jaw were paralyzed from the pure agony of being boiled alive. This went on for eons. Pain beyond all comprehension, 
followed by relief so sweet, I couldn't help but to be glad for it and bask in it, just to have it torn away from me in the most brutal fashion as the torture began again, made worse by the brief reprieve I'd gotten from it dulling my memory of it. With nothing but my mental screams and pleas for death, and the occasional perfect laugh from that man. One would think that you'd eventually get used to the pain, but no. Each time, it was just as mind-bendingly gruesome as the first. Then, after what could only be seen as eternity, all at once I was out of the water, just above it. I heard the man's voice speak his first words, unless you count whimsical laughter as words, and what had to have been a few millennia. Even his words sounded breezy, as if you were lounging on a beach without a care in the world. Looks like someone has come for you, so our playtime is over. But maybe we will see each other again sometime. As I rose higher and higher above the water, I felt sharp pains in my chest. It hurt so bad, though not as bad as the water. I clenched my eyes shut trying to block it out. I started coughing, feeling water surge up my throat and out of my lungs leaving relief behind. Sunlight. That's the first thing I registered when I opened my eyes again. My vision was blurry, and it felt like I was breathing through a thick pillow, but the sun was definitely there. Slowly, my vision came into focus, and I saw faces over me. I didn't recognize the first face, and was immediately scared this was a new place for more torture, until I looked over and saw Dre, Erica, and Angela staring at me with tears in their eyes the sister's mother just behind them. They filled me in on the details soon after. The face over me belonged to an EMT. I had drowned in that pool. My cousin's screams had alerted those inside, and Angela dialed 911 while Erica and her mother ran out to get me. The mother pulled me out. By the time I was completely out of the water, an ambulance had arrived, but I had no pulse. After completely drying me off, it being a 90 degree plus day helped with that, they tried the paddles on me. It worked, and here I am now. I spent the next two days in the hospital, as they scanned for lung damage from the chlorine-filled water and brain damage from lack of oxygen. I had stopped breathing for over three minutes. Just three minutes. That's how long I was dead for. That thought still perplexes me. I had been in that cycle of torment for enough time for the human race to die off, yet only three minutes had passed. But here I am, alive and well, though I haven't gone near a pool or large body of water since. I have panic attacks crossing bridges. The point of my story? I don't know, really. Just to write it all down, I guess. The man's voice and laugh still haunt me to this day. I guess part of me hoped writing it all down would help me leave it in the past, but I really think I just wanted you to know these simple facts. Hell is very real, but it's not fire and brimstone. It is a place where you will know what real pain is, over and over, in a way that you couldn't even imagine. The devil is real, and he is not a little man with red skin, horns, and a pointy forked tail. He comes to you as something benign something that could be perceived as beautiful and he is waiting for all of us he comes to you with calm confident footsteps slow and steady because he is in no hurry he is not panicked over the judgment that we will not comprehend because he knows when you'll belong to him i still hear the footsteps creeping through my hallway and around me at random times 
I still hear his laugh. So carefree, so innocent, that you almost believe it means you no harm. And I know others hear it too. Hear it and know in the pit of their soul there is something painful within that laugh. Like a pillow that looks so inviting when you're tired, but you know it's filled with needles, ready to stab through the fabric into you. It's easy to see the look on their face when that sound twists a part of them that they don't even know exists into a knot of terror. He's watching us all. Think about it. Have you ever heard a laugh you felt was too perfect? Ever heard footsteps just with an earshot but with no reason to be there? That's him. He's real. And he's always on his way. I was on a cross-crunchy road trip with a colleague. We were driving through West Texas on a major highway. In the area where we were, even the major highway was pretty desolate. There had been a truck stop or gas station about every hundred miles, and every one of them was solitary, with no other buildings in sight. These weren't really towns. The exits... Just places to get more gas to get to the next gas station. It was pretty late at night, and she had been driving for like four hours. I can usually drive for about eight before I get tired out. I go on frequent road trips. But she could only manage four or five before it was my turn again. We were also getting low on gas at about a quarter tank. And you learn from road travel to fill up whenever you get the chance. So she was looking for a gas station as we drove along. It's really corny, but we were talking about fate and destiny and some other weird shit at the time. That kind of conversation gets me keyed up and worried, so I was trying to change the subject. She took an exit while we were talking, and I got out my coffee mug so I could fill up for my turn driving. We pulled into a typical Nowhereville gas station. Just the station and a trailer out back. I assume, thinking back, it was probably where the people who owned it lived. There was another car parked in front of the doors, off to one side. We got out, still talking, and walked up to the double doors, each of us grabbing a door handle. The doors were locked. I turned and looked around to see if there was a sign. Sometimes, places will put up a back in five minutes sign and I noticed several things in succession the coffee maker inside was halfway done brewing a fresh pot of coffee the monitors that showed the store were visible from outside where we were but all of them were showing static and there was a splash of bright red on the door in the back of the place which was closed I suddenly realized I was looking at a huge streak of blood with handprints in it. Every hair on my neck stood up. My friend began shaking the door, yelling, We need to get gas. But I had already turned and walked away from the door. We have to leave, now. I grabbed her arm and started propelling her back to the car. Now, I noticed the other car in the lot. It had no plates. It was all dingy and had dents. There was an empty gun rack in the window of it. I ran to the car, dragging her with me. She seemed to take forever to open her door and get in. 
The whole time, she kept saying, but we need gas. While I tried to explain to her, there's blood in there. Blood. After what seemed like a year, she pulled the car out. When we were backing up, I saw through the windows that the back door in the gas station was opening. We had pulled away before anyone came out though, thankfully. I freaked out until we were 20 miles down the highway. I tried to call the police, but I had no signal. I didn't get a phone signal until we had driven about 40 miles and got to a truck stop. Again, not in a town, just a building on its own in the middle of nothingness. I called the cops. They thanked me, and I never heard anything more about it. To this day, I feel like if I hadn't freaked out, we probably would have met the robber or whoever was in the back room of the place. I also wish I'd been able to find out what the hell happened there. It was a Chevron station, somewhere in the western part of Texas, at least within about a hundred miles or so of the signs for those places, on Route 10. Everybody has a demon. Most people just don't know it. I do. I can see them. They perch on your shoulders or ride piggyback, whispering in your ear. Sometimes they speak words soothing and sickly sweet. Other times, bitter and venomous. Some people's demons are tiny and innocuous, even cute. Others are brutes, stupid, foul. Some are, in a word, abominations. Twisted malevolent perversions who revel in misery and suffering. Those are the worst kind. You can tell a lot about a person by looking at their demon. My demon's name is Jack. Well, that's what I call him anyways. They never tell you their real names. And that's okay by me. Jack fits him just fine. I've known Jack for as long as I can remember. In my whole life, actually. He's always been around. When I was lonely... Jack would play with me. When I was sad, Jack would crack jokes to make me laugh. When I was bored, Jack would tell stories. Jack always knew the right things to say. When I was young, I thought my parents could see him too. They called Jack my imaginary friend, and my mother would tell the other moms about how creative her son Kevin is. He has such a vivid imagination. Sometimes, they would ask me questions about Jack or they would ask him questions about me. He would always answer, but I began to notice something strange. They never seemed to react quite right. It was like they weren't actually hearing him. They'd become smug and condescending and say things like, I think Jack is telling you to finish your green beans. Don't you think so, honey? I think they were ignoring Jack on purpose, and then I'd get frustrated and start to cry. I was nine when I finally figured it out. They really couldn't see him. They were just playing along. They were the ones pretending, not me. They were fools. I knew Jack was real, as real as anyone else. So I'd talk about him all the time, to my parents, my teachers, the kids at school, to anyone who'd listen. I'd try to convince them that Jack was real. That's when it stopped being cute, and my parents started to worry about me. Sometimes at night, I'd lay in bed listening to them talking in the kitchen, my mother would get weepy, and my father would speak quiet, soothing words to her. He'd say things like, It's just a face. He'll grow out of it. All kids go through this. It just lasts longer for some. 
I lay there in bed with Jack by my side, comforting me. Why can't they see you? I'd ask. You have a gift. A special gift. They don't. Jack would say, smiling. Well, why don't they believe me? I'm their son. Why do they think I'd lie? That's just the way people are. You're very young, Kevin. You have oh so much to learn about the world. But I'll always be here for you, Kevin. You can count on me. I'll always be here for you. Around this time, I started getting into trouble at school. The other kids would make fun of me when I talked about Jack. They called me Crazy Kevin and Baby Boy Kevy Wevy, and they would laugh and punch the air and tell me they were beating Jack up. They would taunt me and push me down, and when I tried to defend myself, I would get in trouble. Kids can be so cruel to one another, and the teachers weren't much better. They tell me, Well, stop talking about your imaginary friends, and the other kids will leave you alone. So I did. I wasn't a dumb kid. I knew they were making fun of me because I was different. They didn't have imaginary friends, and I did. And even though I knew Jack was real, no one else thought he was. Imaginary friends weren't supposed to be real. The unknown scared them. I scared them. So I stopped talking about Jack, and I stopped talking to Jack. I ignored him, pretending he wasn't real. Jack got angry. Sometimes at night, he'd knock things over or throw things around my room to get my attention. Sometimes, he'd break things in my house and I'd get blamed. Even worse, he started appearing in my dreams, tying me up and torturing me in strange primitive rituals, chanting and carving esoteric symbols into my flesh. I'd wake in a cold sweat, mind reeling. Jack would be hovering above my bed, quietly watching as I slept. Finally, when I couldn't stand the torment anymore, I started talking to him again, in whispers and only late at night while the rest of the house slept. I explained the situation to him, about my parents, my teachers, the kids at school. When I told him, he smiled. He understood. Jack always understood. He told me that everybody has a demon, just like me. They just can't see it. They don't know it exists. He told me I was special, that I had a gift. I was still doubtful, but Jack wasn't upset. He told me I was so special that he was going to get me another gift, just to prove it. Then he disappeared. For the first time in my life, I was alone. I felt so scared, abandoned, and utterly alone. I was miserable. A week passed, and still no Jack. Was this how regular people lived out their lives? So lonely all the time? How did they stand it? Then, I awoke one night, and he was standing over my bed like he'd never left. I was so happy. Where did you go, Jack? I asked. To get your gift, of course. But, where is it? You already have it, Jack answered. But, where? You didn't give me anything. Shh. Quiet, child. It will all make sense in the morning. Go to sleep now, Kevin. Go to sleep, child. He sang me a lullaby in some ancient tongue as I drifted off. I awoke the next morning, as excited as a kid on Christmas, ready to run out of my bedroom and see my new gift. But Jack grabbed me by the arm and spoke to me sternly. You must make a promise to me, Kevin. Whatever you see out there, you must promise never to tell anyone about it. You must never speak of it aloud. Otherwise, your gift will disappear. Otherwise, I will disappear. I promised. 
promised me three times, Jack said. So I did. You've promised me thrice, never to speak of what you see. Do not forget your promise, Kevin. We walked into the kitchen, and I stopped dead in my tracks. There, at the breakfast table, sat my mother and father. On each of their shoulders perched a demon. On my mother's sat a large puppy creature, a mix between a bunny rabbit and a giant marshmallow, but with huge doughy eyes and long silver fangs. On my father's sat a long, skinny, worm-like creature with hollow eyes and the face of a bat. It was blue and translucent like ice. A cloud of steam rose from its body. Its tail was coiled around my father's neck. I yelped in surprise, and eight eyes turned toward me, four human and four demonic. I made some excuse to my parents, which calmed them down, but the demons stared at me wide-eyed. At first, I thought they were angry, but then I recognized that they were actually afraid. Afraid of me. Afraid that I could see them. The bat snake hissed something I couldn't understand, but Jack barked back in a gruff guttural language, which echoed in our tiny kitchen. My parents' demons cowered before him submissively. From that day forward, I saw them everywhere I went. It was scary to be sure, but at least I knew I wasn't the only one. Everybody has a demon. Still, it could be overwhelming. There were so many, and they all knew that I knew. They would say things to me, horrible things. They would brag about the twisted and perverted acts they had convinced their people to commit. They would tell me about their people's evil thoughts and dark secrets. The demons delighted in recounting these tales in graphic detail. Sometimes Jack would stop them, but sometimes he wouldn't, or even worse, he couldn't. Some of them were scarier than Jack, stronger than Jack, and there was nothing he could do. Sometimes I would catch an evil glint in Jack's eyes, and I could tell that he was enjoying hearing about all the wicked and foul deeds other demons had convinced their people to do. He almost seemed jealous. It became too much, and I had to make some changes. I would walk to school instead of riding the bus. I began avoiding crowds, and started spending my free time alone in my room or out hiking in the woods. But it was no use. I started falling behind in school. It was impossible to concentrate in class with all those demons glaring at me, whispering to me, and laughing at me. I told Jack about this, but he shrugged it off. He reminded me that this was a gift that I was special. He promised me that one day I would be glad I had it. I trusted him. Jack was always there for me. Jack always took care of me. Sometimes I felt afraid. I could always tell who the really bad people were by the size and nastiness of their demon. I could see all the liars, the adulterers, the rapists, the murderers, and the child molesters. They walked the streets, mingling in secret with the good people and the normal people like wolves among sheep, and nobody knew but me. You'd be surprised just how many of them there are, and there was nothing I could do about it. At least, not yet. That changed in the 10th grade when I met Elijah. Elijah was a bully, and he didn't try to hide it. He was a fat, ugly, hulking slab of a boy. He was stupid, too. Book stupid, or willfully ignorant at the very least. But when it came to bullying, he was a genius. He had an uncanny ability to find a person's greatest joy in life and turn it against them. He seemed to make it his personal mission to torment the smaller, smarter, weaker, and more introverted kids, of which I was one. 
He also had one of the nastiest demons I'd ever seen. It was a massive hippopotamus-looking beast, with twisted horns and breath like the grave. It lay across his shoulders, making Elijah slouch when he walked. The popular kids ignored most of us, but they despised Elijah. In his mind, that was our fault, and he made sure that we paid for it. He loved to trip kids in the hallway, knock their books out of their hands, snap girls' bras, fire spitballs in class, and generally make our lives a living hell. Elijah's specialty was stealing lunches. I never once saw him buy a lunch or bring his own. He'd simply go from table to table, taking what he wanted from the nerds. He always made sure to take my milk. I don't even think he liked it, but he knew that I liked it, so he'd take it, chug it down, and throw the empty carton in my face, laughing all the while. Jack started whispering things to me, telling me what a horrible person Elijah was, telling me all the nasty things he did when he was alone, telling me how he reveled in torturing and killing people's pets out in the woods, telling me about the things he would do to his little sister late at night, telling me all the horrible things he would do in the future, telling me that if Elijah died, no one would miss him. I tried to ignore him, but the longer it went on, the more sense Jack seemed to make. The final straw came one day when Elijah caught me alone in the bathroom. I was standing at the urinal peeing when I heard the door open and heavy footsteps come up from behind. Aw, look at this. Crazy Kevy Wevy having a will pee-wee break? He sneered. His breath was hot on my neck, like a foul breeze wafting from a garbage dump on a scorching summer day. I ignored him, trying to finish the task at hand as quickly as possible. What's wrong, faggot? You deaf or something? He asked. I continued ignoring him. Big mistake. He kicked me hard on the backpack, smashing my chest into the urinal and my face into the concrete wall. I saw stars and fell to the ground, my member still in my hand, still urinating. Oh no, look at that. Will Kevy fell down and wet himself. Here, let me help you with that. I lie on the ground in a daze and her pants unzipping somewhere above me. Then, a warm putrid stream was pouring over my backpack and down my legs and Elijah was laughing. I covered my head and pretended I was somewhere else. When it was over, I heard the door slam shut and from the hallway Elijah laughing. Hey everybody, check it out. Crazy Kevin pissed himself. I looked up and there was my demon Jack. He was staring at me with a smirk on his face. Okay, you win. Tell me what I have to do. Jack's smile widened. Easy, he said. Switch to almond milk. For the next two weeks, I packed my lunch with almond milk instead of my regular 2%. It tasted disgusting, but I hardly ever got to drink it anyways. Elijah stole it from me every single day without fail, and he really seemed to enjoy the taste. Then... One day after school, a knock came at my door. It was a stranger, disheveled and wild-eyed, dressed in a cheap suit. His demon was a snake, red as blood, venom dripping from its maw. He didn't say a word, just handed me a crumpled paper bag and walked away. I opened the bag and pulled out a clear vial with a strip of masking tape on the side. On the masking tape, in clear black sharpie marker, one single word was written. Cyanide. Jack was grinning again. Tastes like almond milk, he whispered. I mixed it into my milk for tomorrow's lunch, 
And the next day, I ditched the empty vial in a dumpster on my way to school. A few minutes after drinking my milk, Eliza was convulsing on the floor. I sat and watched, casually munching on a taco. A few minutes after that, he was dead. I wasn't sad. I actually felt good. Better than I had in a long time. The cause of death was determined to be cerebral hypoxia, likely brought on by a stroke. Very few more dispassing. I started missing more and more school, and a few months later, I dropped out completely. Not that I felt guilty or thought I might get caught. No way. I just had other, more important work to do. I got a job in a rough part of the city, working in a crummy old bookbinding factory. The work was monotonous, but easy, and I soon saved up enough to buy a used car and rent a shitty studio apartment. I worked second shift at the factory from 3pm to 11pm. Most guys hated the hours, but I found them perfect for supporting my extracurricular activities, finding bad people, and killing them. My demon helped me. Jack was a real natural when it came to this. He helped me track down people with particularly nasty demons, and he'd tell me all the vile things they'd done. We'd stalk them like hunters, learning their patterns and routines. Then, he'd tell me the best way to kill them and how to get away with it. And I always got away with it. Pimps, rapists, drug dealers, child molesters, human traffickers, I did them all. Sometimes, I made it look like an accident, or a suicide, or a robbery gone wrong. I beat, stabbed, strangled, shot, and drowned. I even pushed one fat fucker on the third rail of the subway. He just fried like bacon. He even smelled like it. Jack was always there for me, protecting me, making sure I got away with it. The best part was, I never felt bad about it. Every person I killed was a wretched excuse for a human being. They deserved it. And I was making the world a better place. Some might even say I was a hero. My conscience was clear and I slept like a baby. Killing people became normal, even fun. It was my hobby and damn was I good at it. Eventually, I didn't even think about it anymore. I just did it. And that's when it all came unraveled. I was out on patrol one night, following the SUV of a mid-level drug dealer as he made his pickups. He must have made me because as we came to an intersection, he slowed down and waited until the light was just changing from yellow to red, then floored the gas pedal. I tried to follow, but I must have been a second too late because a black BMW going the other way smashed into the side of my car, T-boning me and sending me spinning through the intersection. My head must have slammed into the steering wheel because I briefly lost consciousness. When I came to, my ears were ringing and stars danced before my eyes. Smoke drifted from the front of my car. Then, I heard another noise, angry, screaming and cursing. The owner of the BMW was striding towards me, a mountain of a man, face red, fists clenched, arms swinging, spittle flying from his mouth as he screamed. I lurched from my seat to face him, blood pouring from the gash on my forehead. Straddling the man's shoulders was one of the most horrific demons I'd ever seen. He was huge, round, pale white, and bloated like a corpse. Pus oozed from a thousand sores covering his body. It had no arms or legs. Instead, its entire mass was one giant face consisting of two tiny beady black eyes and one enormous gaping mouth filled with row upon row of razor-sharp teeth. A forked tongue slithered snake-like through its fangs, flitting the air searching for a victim. 
I felt bile rising from my throat and fought it down. As the man surged towards me, I felt my rage rise, and I found myself thinking about Elijah, about all the times he had teased me, tormented me, humiliated me. I thought I heard a subtle whisper in my ear. Do it. My mind went blank. My vision went white around the edges. I felt like I was trapped behind my eyes watching, unable to control what was happening. The man was close, screaming in my face. He meant to hurt me. I reached into my pocket, then a flash of chrome in the streetlight. A hot turret sprang me in the face. The man's eyes bulging with rage one moment, now rolling back into his skull. His body slumping to the ground, my knife buried in his throat. I looked to Jack for help, but he was laughing. Laughing like a madman, and screeching something in that foul ancient language. Realization set in. I'd done this man. Done him out in the open, at a city intersection, under a street light, with no planning or forethought. With no escape route, and no plan for cleanup. I turned on Jack in a panic. Are you just going to stand there laughing? Help me. Tell me what to do. How do I fix this? He was howling now. This one was all you. I had nothing to do with it. The man you just killed was a politician. A city councilman. Perhaps no less of a criminal than the pimps and gangbangers we normally kill. But this guy did it under the guise of law and order. I didn't make you do this. You chose this. I could almost feel my face go white as a ghost, and the world began to spin around me. I was stumbling toward the car, trying not to vomit, when I heard the noise behind me, followed by the scream of a siren. A cascade of red and blue light reflected off the windows of my car, and the shops around me. The cruiser peeled out from the gas station across the intersection and rushed towards me. I sat in the interrogation room for hours. Jack stood next to me smirking as the detectives worked me over. It all came out. They found everything, enough evidence in my car and my apartment to tie me to dozens of murders. They said it would be a miracle if I got life in prison. The DA would go for the death penalty on this one for sure. Then, they were laughing, and their demons were laughing, and Jack was laughing too. My court-appointed lawyer was a mousy man with thick glasses and mustard stains on his suit jacket. His demon was a small skittering cockroach with the sallow face of a dead baby. He did not seem optimistic about my chances. The only hope to avoid the death penalty, he said, was to claim guilty, but insane or mentally ill. Have you ever felt like you weren't in control of your actions? Have you ever heard voices in your head telling you to do things? Someone speaking to you? God? The devil? Demons? I pondered that for a moment. Jack was smiling, but his stare was black. Don't forget your promise, he whispered. You swore to me. You swore three times, never to tell anyone. I remember, I replied. But this is no gift. It's a curse. And I'm glad to be through with you. My lawyer looked confused. Who are you talking to? My demon, I said. Everybody has a demon. Most people just can't see them. My demon is named Jack. And yes, he tells me to do things. Now I'm alone. Jack is gone. Gone forever. I sit here in a straitjacket, within these four padded walls, waiting for my pills. Waiting to forget. I'll never see the sunshine again. Everybody has a demon. Everybody. Except me.